0: You guys, welcome to episode 78 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives in the well-known, and more importantly, not so well-known, well, hookups of y'all's favorite reality TV stars. It's me, Trim McEady. How are you? You look amazing. You're so skinny. Look at you, skinny manny. How's it going? <laughs> oh my god, you guys, I'm in rare form today, because guess what? It is 7 7 a.m that's right not p.m if you've listened to more than one episode of this podcast then you know that your boy is not a morning person i do not wake up whistling or anything like that i wake up literally like a like a, a, a a haggard old witch just like i look like the blair witch when i get up my feet float off the ground and i float to the bathroom and i spit and cough and hack things up and rub crust out of my eyes and it's a vulgar sight it really is it's a crime scene um but i am weirdly very excited for this very sad episode um actually you know this episode truly isn't really sad so let me just break down my thoughts plans and theories and ideas and you tell me what you think i don't know i'm thinking about doing this i'm not really sure yet but i am thinking about doing a three part britney murphy series dark too dark too soon not soon enough excited not excited what are your thoughts today we're gonna be talking about britney murphy and eminem and um there's so much there's so much fascinating content when it comes to britney murphy's life that i was just like you know it almost feels like a disservice to stop here like to talk about Brittany Britney Murphy indefinitely and then not be able to talk about her passing away just kind of seems, I don't know, it seems wrong. It seems disrespectful, especially for somebody that I love and adore so much. And I know that you guys love and adore Brittany Murphy. Like, she's just one of those people that it's unspoken that if you are like a fan of pop culture, you know, if you grew up loving pop culture, um, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, like, Brittany Murphy is somebody that we all just kind of collectively adore and there's so many unanswered questions about her death and um you know so many things that don't make sense that we all kind of want to understand uh and make sense of not to say that i'm gonna solve britney murphy's death during this podcast i might to be honest with you the rain man might jump out and i honestly very may very well may (laughs) solve britney murphy's death who knows you know what i mean the night is young but this week we're keeping it kind of light. Uh, we're going to be talking, like I said, about Britney, Murphy, and Eminem. Um, Eminem, you know, not a blind spot for me at all. Your boy grew up loving Eminem. I, at a certain, I mean, at a time in my life, up until, like, mid-2000s to, like, late-2000s, I was, like, a, I was a stan, if you will. I loved Eminem. I had every Eminem album. I was, like, one of those people that would sit and decipher all of his lyrics. And, I mean, I was, I was obsessed. And... I thought it would be fun to go back and, like, revisit Eminem's career, especially, you know, we're living in this very, like, politically correct time when, you know, you have to say and do the right things at all, all the right moments, or else people are just waiting and willing and ready to attack you and, you know, end you and cancel you. Cancel her! You know what I mean? This We live in cancel culture now, and... Um, It's just interesting to imagine what the world would have been like, you know, had Eminem come out, like, say, now. I mean, could you imagine Eminem rapping about the stuff that he used to rap about, like, when he first was introduced to us now? About killing his mom and hiding her body and killing his girlfriend and putting her in the trunk and throwing her off of bridges and his mom being a crackhead and, you know, using, like uh homophobic remarks and all these things i mean he would literally be crucified and hung to a, i mean he would be hung to a cross and burned um and uh yeah i mean i just think it would be interesting to go back and revisit him i took a shit ton of notes so i don't even know how long this episode's going to be but we're just going to roll with it and um yeah i'm really excited i've got my whole art i still haven't learned that word is it artisanal no artisanal is like bread it's a artisery <laughs> artisal artisal, artisanal uh artisan i've got a pile of cough drops here and some throat spray and some water i don't know my artist artisan i don't know you know what i'm trying to say it's like all my things you know what i mean like my satchel or whatever of weapons right um you guys so here's the deal britney murphy and eminem started dating in 2002 and then they stopped dating in 2002 and here's the reason i'm pretty sure they just had sex a couple times you know what i mean I can almost guarantee that they had sex a handful of times. I think they did become very close during the filming of this movie. Um, But they were never in any sort of, like, real relationship. This was one of those hit-it-and-quit-it situations. Um, You know, which occasionally is something that we talk about in this podcast. Like, not every relationship in Hollywood ends up being, you know, a sprawling 15-year marriage a la Celine Dion and Renee Ajalil. Um, Sometimes they... Have sex and then they never speak again, and I think that that was the case for this situation. I think that Brittany Murphy wanted that good, good M M&M and M dick, and she got it, and then she pieced out. And he, you know, she, he taught her how to give a good middle finger, and that was what she got from him. Um, she learned from him what she needed to learn. Um, I mean, and you know, it's whatever. It's good enough for us. You know what I mean? A one night stand is good enough for us to be able to talk about it for an hour. Um. Brittany Murphy and Eminem were both in sort of peak high points in their career when they got together. Uh, you know, Eminem, <laughs> Eminem had won, you know, the respect of the world as a rapper. You know, he had finally jumped over that hurdle of being like a white rapper. He had had so much critical acclaim at this point. You know, his albums were doing so incredibly well. He was breaking all these world records. And Brittany Murphy was just doing back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back hits. And it seemed like every time Britney Murphy started a movie, her career got bigger. Like, it was an actual stepping stone towards, like, some bigger role. And, um... You know, she'd kind of become one of the most hireable people in Hollywood at this point. And she had done comedy and drama and horror... And young adult films and independent and you know that in my opinion is what Brittany Murphy will always to me uh that's kind of what she'll always be known for is how versatile she was as an actress and the fact that she could just kind of you put her in any movie and she she really would kind of elevate the movie I mean no matter how good or bad it was you know the movie could have been absolutely terrible with had horrible writing and uh you know you put Brittany Murphy in it and you know, it, somehow the, she made terrible movies better. She was just so good. Um, and 8 Mile is a movie that, you know, it wasn't critically panned, but it definitely had kind of mixed reviews. It it leaned more towards the, the side of being acclaimed and people really praised, you know, Eminem's performance and they praised Britney. Um, you know, she, but she was sort of seen as a high point in that movie. Like I said, any movie you put you put her in she makes it better and i think that the movie obviously would have survived without britney murphy but i do think that she added an element to that movie i don't know i think that she and m had obviously really good chemistry i'm calling him m now by the way because i've done research on him for the past six hours so i think that him and i are at a point in our relationship where i can call him m and if you have a problem with that then you need to step off Anyway, as I always say, ladies first. So we're going to start today with Brittany, because duh, because I'm obviously literally shaking. I'm so excited to talk about her. Um, Your girl Brittany, Brittany Bertoli, to be exact, was born in Georgia, uh, but she grew up in Edison, New Jersey. Um, She moved there when her parents divorced when she was two years old. Um, Brittany's dad walked out on her and her mother. Um, He kind of left them with nothing. Uh, The Times UK did an interview with her where she said there was not a lot of money and uh, no safety net, but my mom struggled and fought for every opportunity that I was given. And Britney had a very classic, like, I don't know, I'm going to be a star mommy um, story. Uh, You know, her first gig was at a local theater. Um, She was in the musical uh, Really Rosie um, when she was nine years old. And... After the performance, she told the local theater, by the way, this is her at nine years old, I'm going to get an agent and do commercials and work in New York. Then I'm going to move to Los Angeles, be in movies in Hollywood, and then come back to do Broadway. Then I'll probably have a huge musical career. I'm going to change the world. So she literally gave like a Madonna on Dick Clark interview at nine, which I'm obsessed with. And by the way, every single one of those things came into fruition. Um, she had a couple gigs on some local commercials Um, She ended up acting in three commercials in one day. And after this really long, very grueling day of filming, where, like I said, she had done three commercials back to back that all took several hours to film. She was still super excited and very bubbly and very into it and passionate. And she loved it. And um, that was the thing that kind of convinced her mom that she was possibly ready to move to Hollywood and try and actually make it because she just was so filled up with like happiness and energy and joy from doing this. So, in 1991, Britney and her mom moved to LA, and you know, the rest is history. She also has one of those very classic rags to riches stories, similar to like a Britney Spears or a Hilary Duff where their parents literally, you know, pack everything that they own in the back of a van, whatever they don't need gets sold for money uh to, you know, for like gas or whatever. And they moved to Hollywood on a dream. Um, you know, and a dream that was truly her daughter's. Like, there's a lot of back and forth and speculation as to the relationship that Britney had with her mom, whether or not it was savory or unsavory, as I like to say. Um, they were extremely dependent on each other, which we're going to get to here in a second. Um, and there, there are a lot of people who... You know, Brittany Murphy is somebody who, and I'm not to skip ahead because this is a whole thing that we're going to talk about in in a minute here, but Brittany Murphy was somebody who was so insecure about the way she looked and her body and her face and her hair and her teeth and everything. She was so constantly just sort of on edge about being perfect. And a lot of people do say that her mom contributed heavily to that because she was somebody who you know, required her daughter to be a certain weight and wanted her to look like this and speak like this and talk, you know, the whole thing, like a pageant mom. Um, but then there are people who say like, you know, that that was not the case at all. And that her mom was the complete opposite. And, you know, the reason they were so close is because her mom was her protector from all those things. Um, you know, and I, I I've read a lot about how close they were and I'm not going to lie. It triggered me a little bit. <laughs> I felt triggered. You know, Britney's relationship with her mom has been described as unusually close because they grew up together. They refer to each other as their soulmates. And you know, I've described my relationship with my mom in the past in this podcast as very Norman Bates. It's very Norma and and uh, Norma and Norman. It is. You know what I mean? Because you know what I mean. Because wait, you know what I'm on? Because my mom and I grew up together as well. Uh, my mom had me when she was super young, and. Uh, we grew up as, like, a weird sibling, best friend, but also mother-son thing. So, yeah, it's very Norman Bates, very Bates Motel, and I got this. I don't know if I would ever introduce people to my mom as my soulmate, um, but we were close, you know what I mean? Like, we're close now. We've always been close, but I just, this is, like, a new level of closeness that I'm not familiar with, um... By the time Britney turned 13, she had starred in a handful of commercials. She had also made her uh, her Broadway debut, as she so boldly uh, said she would do. I don't know how to word that. Um, In 1997, she starred in A View from the Bridge with Alice and Janie. And she was also cast as Luann Platter in the Fox series King of the Hill. You may have heard of it. And I just have to say before we go any further, because I can't think of another time when I'll have an opportunity to like say this or whatever and put it out into the world. But you know, I mean, to me, the Simpsons is the greatest animated series of all time. It will always have my heart. It raised me. It was a huge deal for me growing up. It still is. Bart. Simpson. I told you Macaulay Culkin and Bart Simpson were my inspirations, both in style and grace. And, um, Second to The Simpsons was King of the Hill. I mean, King of the Hill is one of the greatest animated series in the history of the world. And honestly, some could say—now, this is these is fighting words—but you could argue that it's even maybe a little bit better than The Simpsons, because it never fell off. King of the Hill was great from the moment it premiered to the moment it ended, you know, a million years later. Is that, as we all know, The Simpsons had about ten really great, solid years, and then it really fell off, hardcore— And it's not really found its place again, you know, 20 years later. Anyway, Britney kills it as Luann. I love her on King of the Hill. I don't know. I just, I think that this is like one of the most, one of the greatest things of her career. And people don't really talk about it very often. They don't ever talk about King of the Hill being a Britney Murphy show. But she's just so great in it. Um, Her Hollywood debut came... When she starred in the series Drexel's Class, uh, she had guest appearances on Parker Lewis, Can Lute, Can't Lose, a little before my time, sorry, um, Blossom, Seaquest, and Frasier. She also had reoccurring roles on Party of Five, Boy Meets World, and Sister, Sister. And I just have to say very quickly, for some reason, people tend to be very bewildered, plucked, and bothered when I bring up the fact that Brittany Murphy was on Sister, Sister. Which is actually hilarious because her character in Sister, Sister is literally just Ty. She has the same accent, the same hair. She dresses like Ty. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of floral overall moments. Like, she's literally Ty. And she was great on Sister, Sister. Like, I loved that show as well. That was, like, one of my favorite shows growing up. And she was definitely my favorite side character that, like, was outside of the family. Even over Roger. I loved her. Right, girls? Um, Anyway... (laughs) Oh my god, I'm feeling very defensive tonight about things that I don't need to defend, like Sister Sister and King of the Hill. Like, it's like, there's nobody fighting me on these topics. Um, now, we do have to talk about this, again... Another sort of underground, it's a very low budget. I mean, it looked like it was filmed with like a home video camera. It's low budget. If you know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy that owns like uh an antique store, you may be able to find a copy of this very low budget underground snuff film called Clueless. Now it's you know, you gotta get it on the black market. The dark web is the only place you can really find it. It's called Clueless. It has all these underground stars in it, and not many people have seen it. Can we talk for a second? Now clueless happened at a very pivotal time in pop culture. You know, at this point, teen movies were viewed as just totally unoriginal garbage. John Hughes had already sort of set the bar for what it meant to release a very, you know, a great, culture-defining teen movie. And a lot of what was being pitched at that time in Hollywood was, you know, these, like, John Hughes knockoffs. They're, like, ripoffs, but, like, not done well, you know what I mean, about about a bunch of nerdy guys and outcasts trying to, like, navigate popular people. Um, and done in a really sort of hacky, cliche, stereotypical way. Nothing that was going to move the genre forward. So this was a super, you know, um, nobody wanted to make teen movies at this time. They were dead. And Amy Heckerling, who was famous at the time for creating Fast Times at Ridgemont High had this idea to do this elevated teen movie, sort of inspired by Jane Austen's Emma. She wanted to make a movie sort of inspired by the character Emma and the 1960s TV series Gidget. Uh, She wrote characters that were sort of surrounded by pop culture, very immersed in the pop culture of the 90s and all this sort of 90s realism all around them at all times. But at the same time, they also felt like cartoons, they were literally, like, cartoon versions of actual people who existed in Beverly Hills. And the really interesting thing about the characters in Clueless is that for, you know, for a young person watching that movie, I'll speak for myself, it does feel like you're getting some sort of bird's eye view into a world that you'll never be cool enough to know, but at the same time, as a kid, like, you wanted to go to that school and, And you wanted to have those friends and you wanted to wear those clothes. Um, You know, you wanted to live in Cher's house. You wanted to have that bedroom. You wanted to talk like them. You wanted to look like them. I mean, it was a very aspirational movie for a kid to watch. And, you know, you want also it was a weird thing where like I wanted to be as mature as I perceived these people to be. You know, thinking that they were, like, these full-fledged adults and not realizing that they're supposed to be, like, 16-year-olds. Um, but no studio wanted Clueless initially. The movie was seen as two, quote, female-oriented, oriented, wait, orientated, oriented. It's 7 a.m., so back off. Seriously, back the fuck up. Okay, it's 7 a.m. And, uh, yeah, the studio, they worried that uh, there weren't gonna be enough people in the movie that related to it because there were no male leads. Like, What? So they kept telling Amy Heckerling that she needed to rewrite the movie where, you know, the men in in the film have more of a pivotal role and they wanted her, this was Fox, by the way, they had pitched the movie to Fox and they were telling her that they wanted her to sort of, you know, push Cher and Dion out of the movie a little bit, push Ty out of the movie a little bit, bring forth the male characters and give them more of a leading role, which, I mean, could you imagine could you imagine Clueless not being about Cher? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Um, Amy Heckerling uh, in an interview said, It was 1995, so Cher was 15, going on 16. She was born in 1980. So this meant her mother was a teenager in the late 60s. She would have looked uh, she would have looked to the famous woman then and thought, I'm gonna have a daughter named Cher. When I was writing Dion when I was writing, Warwick had a connect- had a connection to the psychic line and she was representing that. And Cher was associated with some hair products on TV. So there was this idea of classic female singers who were, who were both on TV selling these weird products. And then Marsha Ross, the casting director said, Ty played by Brittany Murphy's Brittany Murphy was one of the harder roles to cast. Brittany came to the audition with her mother and she was so talented, but I didn't think she knew how talented she actually was. She was the most sweet-natured, self-effacing thing I had ever met. And Twink Kaplan, who was the associate producer and also played Mrs. Geist. That's right. Mrs. Geist helped write this film and was a huge, huge pivotal part in coming up with these characters. I mean, she was going to the library every day with Amy Heckerling, you know, reading Emma together and, you know, making these sort of cliff notes of what they wanted to put the The traits from the book Emma that they wanted to put into Cher. Uh, by the way, also her name was Twink. Like, can we talk? She said, you know, Brittany was undiscovered talent. We loved her so much that we let her sit in the room while we auditioned a few other people. She was sitting on the floor next to me and she was so cute, little Brittany, that laugh, she was always laughing. After everything she said, she had a little laugh. She was very close to Sharon, her mother. If we had a party or anything, she would always stop and ask, can I bring Sharon They were absolutely devoted to one another. And this movie was also released during the peak of the grunge takeover in youth culture. So Amy Heckling talked about, you know, going to visit high schools around the country, specifically in these really wealthy neighborhoods in California, um, with the costume designer Lisa Evans. And they said you know, that they specifically remembered seeing lots of ripped baggy clothes, and they realized that the fashion trend at the time was non-high fashion. So it had become high fashion to not be high fashion. The entire 90s was just a fucking, it was a an oxymoron. It was an enigma wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in cash. Like, for real, though. Like, it made no sense. Um... So, this movie essentially changed the way girls dressed and influenced, obviously, you know, for the rest of of time. I mean, there are still influence, clueless influences in clothes. I mean, what the hell would Forever 21 even be doing if clueless hadn't existed? Would Forever 21 even exist? Would Forever 21 even be a store if the movie clueless hadn't come out? To be honest, I don't know. I don't think so. It really flipped the nation, um on its head and we were all just i mean every girl i knew was just losing their minds trying to find like above the knee socks like just losing their shit and the thing that i love about clueless is that the the clothes in this movie are weirdly timeless even though you look at them like okay here's the thing hear me out hear me out when you look back at the years following this movie, right? So like the ni- you know the late 90s, the early 2000s, mid 2000s like mean girls era, all that stuff. I personally can't really think of a time in which shares iconic yellow like plaid blazer and mini skirt combo wouldn't work. Am I right? Right? I mean like is can't you see any like young, ingenue in a teen movie wearing that outfit from literal head to toe. Especially now. You know what I mean? And I think that that's because the movie wasn't chasing after some trend or trying to be something that it wasn't. It wasn't like going out to high schools and having a bunch of 40-year-olds copy what they think young people are doing. This was a movie that, like, really literally did blaze its own trail and... Instead of trying to copy what they thought was cool, they just sort of created what they thought was cool for teenagers. And then it became what was cool, and it became a pop culture phenomenon. Um, And it really sort of bled into every aspect of youth culture. And I also think it's worth mentioning, while we're talking about Clueless, you know, that for a generation of people, myself included, this movie did, in fact, change the way we speak. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> you go back and listen to episodes of this podcast, I mean, can we... Took, uh you know, the word like is very prominent. Honestly, I, you know. And it's not to say that Clueless invented Valley Girl speak. Obviously, Valley Girl speak comes from the 1980s. More prominently, the movie Valley Girl, which did sort of create the blueprint of this um, sort of like Northern California... Well... California uh, way of speaking for like mall culture you know girls going to the mall um but then clueless took that dialogue and Rubik's cubed it and twisted it and turned it and 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 flipped it and flopped it and slapped it and bopped it and turned it into its own thing and I mean you have I mean it's it's undeniable how crazy it is that 20 years later. We're still talking like Cher Horowitz. Still. It changed how we talk. I mean, like, that is crazy. That movie changed how we all speak. I'm an adult. I'm 30 years old. I go to interviews and I do things. and I have a LinkedIn profile and things and stuff. Grown folks shit. And I still say like every three or four seconds. And you know that about me. I mean, it's wild. It actually would be really fascinating to see what we would be like as people had this movie not come out. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if we lived in a world where Clueless wasn't a thing that ever happened and like was never something that was uh, really prominent in our vocabulary? Could you imagine how different we would all be? I don't want to know that world. That's dark. Um, Clueless was released on July 19th of 1995 and it was considered a sleeper hit for the summer. Um, people didn't have a ton of faith in this movie. Like I said, they didn't think that it was going to draw an audience because it was too female driven um a lot of bridesmaids vibes you know what i mean like oh there's too many women in this movie nobody wants to see it the budget for the movie was 12 million dollars and it made 56 million dollars its first week i just made that up it was not the first week It made 56 million dollars upon its release and the movie was heavily marketed with alicia silverstone's appearance in the aerosmith video um for it's crying right yeah um at the time, Alicia Silverstone was known as the Aerosmith Girl. So, on, you know, and she was the she was the name on the poster of this movie. She was Cher. She was the leading star, the leading lady, and she had this big controversy for being, you know, 16 slash 17 years old and appearing in these two Aerosmith videos with Liv Tyler. And uh, Clueless was a really big breakout movie for Alicia Silverstone. It really opened up the world for her. And she went on to become this weird sort of, I call it the fumbling It Girl, where she never really knew what to do with her It Girl status, and she fumbled it and fucked it up. And to be honest, it was totally not her fault. I mean, like, who would have thought that that Batman would be panned so horribly that it was basically ruin her career? Um, Which is something that we talked about really heavily, I believe, in the, I want to say it was the Drew Barrymore episode. Um... But I say all that just to say that even though this movie did obviously put Britney Murphy on the map, it didn't become this big, massive launching pad for her. Britney was the classic, funny f- sidekick in this movie. You know, she had all the best lines and some of the most memorable scenes, which is very classic sidekick. You know what I mean? But she wasn't the Alicia Silverstone. She wasn't the seven-foot-tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed... uh, beauty alicia silverstone and that had a really big effect on her self-image and on who she kind of became as a person she was described by the media as being frumpy and chubby and overweight which is so fucking insane when you go back and look at pictures of britney murphy from this movie i mean she has to be like what a size like two I mean, at the very, like, a four at the very most, like, she's so tiny. But she, and also, by the way, she's 15. She was 15 years old. But, again, she was described as the frumpy one. You guys, I hate to cut you off, but at this point, I think you know the drill. You've got to be a Patreon member to hear the remainder of this episode. So, go to patreon.com/ EB psychos at that point you will uh, be asked to donate and then when you donate at this level you'll get this podcast you'll get the remainder of all the episodes every single week you'll get Liz Bentley's feathers in my hair which is the teen mom podcast um, you'll get me and Molly's uh, Brittany and Kevin chaotic special you'll get all the stuff that Molly does exclusively through patreon it's well worth it and also if you're not a member of our facebook group go to molly and dot com it'll take you straight to it and uh all we do all day and all night is talk about reality tv it's super fun so like i said patreon.com slash eb psychos and molly and the dot com